Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. It is such a pleasure to welcome a very special guest and a bit of an unusual guest to my show today in that I don't have a lot of obstetricians that I'm shouting out here on Natural MD Radio. My guest today is Dr. Neil Shaw. He's an MD and an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Med School and an associate faculty at Ariadne Labs for Health Systems Innovation. He's an expert in designing, testing, and spreading system interventions that improve the safety, affordability, and experience of patient care. As a general OB-GYN at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Shaw cares for patients during critical life moments that range from surgery to primary care to birth. Prior to joining the faculty, Dr. Shaw founded Costs of Care, a global NGO that curates insights from clinicians to help delivery systems provide better care at lower cost. He's listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare by the Becker's Hospital Review and has been profiled in the New York Times, the New England Journal of Medicine, and other outlets for his efforts to expose how low-value care can harm patients. In 2015, Dr. Shaw co-authored the book Understanding Value based healthcare, which Don Berwick has called an instant classic and Atul Gawande called a masterful primer for all clinicians. He's currently a member of the National Advisory Council and chair of Innovative Payment and Delivery Systems Workgroup for the National Partnership for Women and Families. I was actually introduced to Neil by my son, Aya, who is in public health and ironically, my granddaughter's name is Ariadne, so there was an extra little function there. But the reason I'm having Dr. Shaw on this show today is not necessarily because of all the work he's done in healthcare systems innovation, which is brilliant, but particularly for one area where Dr. Shaw is maverick, innovative, courageous, and incredibly smart. And this is in identifying the hows and whys of the cesarean section overuse epidemic we're experiencing. So before we jump in, I just want to say a caveat. This episode is not about mom shaming or mom blaming or OB shaming or OB blaming. Dr. Shaw and I agree that a necessary cesarean is a life-saving surgery that all women should have access to, but that it's not without risks and therefore improvements are needed in the U.S. healthcare system for avoiding unnecessary cesareans. Neil, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for making time in your busy and important schedule to join me. Oh, it's a tremendous honor. Had I known that you were going to flatter me so much, um, I would have showed up a lot earlier. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely an honor. And I, I will just say that uh, one of the most fun inside jokes with your son, Aya, is that I ask about his Ariadne and he asks about my Ariadne. Oh, so. that's so cute. Well, they're both pretty special, actually. I have wanted to connect and chat with you for so long. And I hope this is the first of many conversations because, you know, the biggest thing for me is uh, to change the system. We really need collaboration. And 
there's so much power between the conversation, I think, of a, a midwife and a physician. And, and of course, both of us are physicians, which brings me to kind of where I, my jumping off point. So you know that I was a midwife for over 20 years before I became a physician. And I, I actually applied in OB for my residency. And I went to my first few interviews and I suddenly realized it felt like I was on a bad date with a guy I didn't ever want to see again. And the clincher was I was on a tour of a major Boston teaching hospital and our little group of resident candidates for the positions that were open there was told, don't worry, we'll have all the C-sections you could possibly want to do. And in fact, we were told the absence of midwives in their program made this even more likely. And I, I honestly felt like at that moment, if I were dead, I would have just turned in my grave. And I realized I, I would go crazy as a midwife in OB. So I actually chose to do family medicine OB because it's a slightly softer path. And I just wonder, I mean, at this point in time, Five of the 10 most common medical interventions performed in the U.S. are related to childbirth. Cesarean sections are the most widely performed surgery in the world, I believe, actually, not just the U.S. And the national C-section rate averages about 34%, though according to some important research that you've been part of publishing, it really shouldn't be significantly higher than 19% to maximize outcomes for mom and baby. You were quoted in one article of the many that you're quoted in and have written as saying, obstetricians like me may be hardwired to operate. So I'm so curious, when in your OB training or practice did you first realize that the numbers weren't adding up between the medical need for C-section and C-section rates? And then how did this realization impact you and your relationship to your colleagues, but also to your profession and your own work? Hmm. Well, to be honest, I think I had the realization later than you. It was if I would have showed up at that tour, which I, I guess I did, and told that I would get more opportunities to operate. I think, as a young person, and frankly, probably as a man, um, I would have thought, "Great, more opportunities to operate. That's what I'm here to do. I, I'm here to train to be a surgeon." And in an environment where uh, that's what you're trying to do, and you spend a lot of time operating. I think that there was probably a point in my training where my startle reflex was to do a C-section, you know? Um, but, uh, it wasn't until, you know, even as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about the healthcare system and the fact that people in healthcare get hurt in two ways, they get hurt when we do too little and when we do too much. And I've had a soapbox about the too much problem in healthcare for a while. It wasn't until I finished my training and had a chance to really step back that I saw that the numbers don't add up. And I think there's actually wide consensus about that. The challenge is for clinicians in the trenches is that it's not really until you zoom out that you see the harm that we're doing. Because if I do a C-section and the baby comes out and it's pink and squirming, I think, great, the baby looks great. It's a good thing I did a C-section. And if I do a C-section and the baby comes out blue and lackluster, I think, man, it's a really good thing I did a C-section. So either way, I'm always right. Um, <laughs> I guess that's the thing about being me. That's really funny, but not also. So, so you had this realization, but you're still in the profession. You're still in a hospital system. And for me, one of the big reasons I realized I just couldn't be an OB is that it's not just the individual OB that's making a decision. There's hospital protocols, there's risk management. And now you're in a profession where all of your colleagues or most of your colleagues are seeing a lot of 
pregnant women as nails and they're hammers and trained to do surgery and want to do surgery. And now you're sort of calling out your own profession. What did that look like for you in terms of mustering the courage to do it and then the, the receptivity or lack thereof that you got? I think, um, so there, there've been moments along the way where, uh, I've thought carefully about how to be provocative or whether to be provocative. So the, the first time for me was, uh, the UK, their FDA equivalent, their National Institutes for Health and Care Excellence, uh, put out a recommendation that said that low-risk women are safer, not safe, but safer having a baby at home with a midwife than in the hospital with a doctor or with an obstetrician. And um, the New England Journal asked me if I wanted to respond to that. And my first instinct, if I'm being completely honest, was, no, thank you. I really like my job. I'm fine. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and to be totally honest, I thought that, that was a, not only just a really bold thing for the UK to do, but it seemed kind of crazy to make that like the blanket policy for a whole country to say that lower some are better off at home. That sound didn't quite sound right to me. And I, uh, because it didn't sound right, and because I had to believe that it's not that the UK doesn't care about how moms and women or moms and uh, babies are doing, they, they must have done this thoughtfully. That I really dug into it and tried to understand it, and um, ended up writing something that was a little bit nuanced, or I thought it was nuanced, that said that moms probably are better off at home with midwife in the UK. Um, Jury's out here in the US because our system is very different, but what is it about their system that makes it safe, and maybe even safer, and what, what can we learn about it? So that was sort of my first foray into this, but uh, into you know uh, saying something that I think a lot of my colleagues here in the US didn't necessarily uh, share my, my views on. But along the way, I think um, one of the things that I've learned uh, is that um, I, I get, I, I, you have to lead from where you stand. Um, and uh, I understand what the optics are of being a young obstetrician and a guy and being at Harvard. And I, I, I try to be thoughtful about that. So I'm giving the keynote address at the ACOG meeting in three weeks where Ooh. I'm going to get a chance to talk to 11,000 of my colleagues. Um, and I know, for instance, that they don't want to hear from me how to practice obstetrics because I look like a young person. I, I need a little bit more gray hair before I can tell them that. Um, especially tell them something that doesn't necessarily sync up with their worldview. Uh, and so I've had to think about, you know, what is, is it that I am the expert on that I have credibility on and how can I use that to sort, sort of build bridges and bring people over to my side? And so, you know, when I was a resident, nobody wanted to hear it from me either, but I could tell them I was the expert in healthcare failure because it was my job as a resident to deal with it. And people bought that, you know? <laughs> I do. I, it's such a powerful stand that you're taking and you really are doing such a brilliant job. I've been following your articles, both the medical journal articles and your various appearances that you make in the New York Times. And you're so well cited. And I, I find you to always be incredibly thoughtful and well measured and honest. You're not mincing words, but you're you're painting a picture with real numbers and real outcomes that sort of speaks for itself. And I, I admire it 
incredibly much. And so thank you for the work that you're doing and you're in such a fabulous position. And I, I really couldn't agree with you more in, in the messaging that you're using, that it really is about building bridges. And I want to swing back around to this conversation about midwives in a little bit and home birth here in the U.S. because that's a real area where there are I, my personal belief, and I know at some point we're going to get together and have tea and talk, but I, my personal belief is that partly it's those broken bridges here in the U.S. that are leading to some of the sort of Wild West we see with the home birth movement um, and, and midwives here. But before we get there, I want to talk about what's happened that led us to get to where we are. So the cesarean section rate has increased, according to your statistics, um, and, and well-documented, about 500% since 1970. And there's, it's been posited that some of this increase may be due to women having babies as an older age, increased obesity rates, which are certainly on the rise in the U.S. But you state that it really only counts for a small increase in greater risks in pregnancy, and that we know this because rates have gone up just as dramatically in perfectly healthy young women. We also know that some people have in the past attributed the escalated cesarean section rate to maternal choice, but you've also demonstrated that that's really not the case. It's less than 1% of first-time moms that are, are requesting a C-section without a medical reason. So if having a baby hasn't become 500% riskier in the past 40 years, what are the big factors that you've identified that have led to this escalation in cesarean section rate so dramatically in just four decades? Well, the first thing is, which you highlighted, is that there's a lot of conventional wisdom about what's driving this. And, you know, 500% is, of course, a dramatic number, particularly when we're talking about basically one to two generations of moms. And, and so everybody thinks that they know what's happening because, you know, everywhere I go, I can ask people to raise their hands if they've been in practice for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And a lot of people have seen this shift happen in real time. It's, you know, within one person's time practicing, they've seen the whole 500%. And so they think that they know. And it's, it's, it's not the, the conventionalism that people put out there. Yes, there are moms on average are older, but C-section rates have gone up in 18-year-olds just as much as it's gone up in 35-year-olds, and there's still more 18-year-olds having babies, you know? Um, it's definitely not, uh, it's less than half a percent of women that are requesting it. It's uh, medical malpractice and reimbursement policies has stayed stable while C-section rates have continued to skyrocket. So, you know, to a certain degree, it's a mystery. Um, the other sort of nuance on this is that it's not just that C-section rates have gone up over time. If you freeze time and you look across the country, you see wildly different C-section rates depending on which hospital women go to. And when you put both together, I think that there's a common reason uh, why C-section rates may have been driven up over time and why they're so wildly different from place to place. And my best explanation for this is that it has to do with the complexity of the environment around the clinical decision maker. Over time, the, the modern labor and delivery unit has evolved uh, to very closely re resemble basically a cardiac ICU. If you think about it, you know, what defines an ICU in a hospital, people often imagine like a ventilator and all these things. It's not a ventilator. It's the ability to have one nurse per patient. That is the definition of an ICU. And so the cardiac ICU does that. The labor floor does that. Uh, the cardiac ICU has the ability to track vital signs in real time. So does the labor floor. The cardiac ICU has the ability to titrate medicine on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. So does the labor floor. 
The only difference between the two is that the labor floor has operating rooms attached. So it's actually the most intense treatment environment of the entire hospital for the healthiest patients. And so if you're delivering people in ICUs, you know, ICUs, by the way, are very expensive. And so it's very, very hard to be patient um, and sort of let nature take its course. Um, and you also have a lot of complexity in, the, in these environments where, um, you know, you've got lots of different patients with lots of different risks and lots of different things that you're trying to do to them and to, to monitor them. Um, and from place to place, I've found that people have very different capabilities in managing that complexity. And the people that are best at wrangling it uh, seem to give people the best care. So how much do you feel that the culture, there is a culture of fear in my experience. You know, I remember when I was in my, um, my OB training at Yale, the, it was the only rotation where the residents were asked not to write in the, in the labor records without really having the senior resident or your attending review what you were going to say. I mean, the, there was such a fear around the medical legal aspects of writing something incorrectly in the note. And there was such a fear, for example, of women who didn't want an external fetal monitor on because an external fetal monitor is sort of your biggest evidence in court. And there was an awareness, actually, that amongst all the professions you could go into, you would not likely be sued as an OB. You had a likelihood of being sued three times during your career. So can you talk about the culture of fear in obstetrics and the pressures on OBs from a medical legal perspective to operate? Because you mentioned there's a desire to operate. Um, so how is that kind of medical legal perspective and, and pressure, the hospital's medical legal and risk management pressures, the, the OB's desire to operate? Cause some of these people wanted to be surgeons. How does that kind of create this constellation of factors that leads to a high C-section rate, if at all, in your opinion? It's not not significant. So, I mean, everybody thinks about, every, nobody likes to be sued, you know? I take brand new doctors through complicated cases every July. And I'm not going to lie, I think about medical malpractice. Um, but uh, I wouldn't characterize it as a culture of fear. I don't think that that really does this justice. I think that um, really, I believe that everyone that works in these environments is very well intentioned. Um, you know, you got to remember, like most obstetricians are also moms or parents. And um, I think that, you know, they, they really do want to do the right thing uh, for people. I will say, though, that uh, in medicine in general, um, but particularly in this environment, we haven't yet done a great job of recognizing that people get hurt when we do too little and when we do too much. And we always, because of that, reward people for taking positive action, right? Like we never celebrate people for showing restraint ever in our environments. You know, when I ran uh, morbidity and mortality conferences uh, as a chief resident, um, you'd always, you know, you basically, what, what these are, you know, you stand in front of a bunch of peers, like a firing squad, and you try to account for everything that went badly that week. And you're always being criticized for the things that you didn't do. And you're never being criticized for the things that you did do but never had to. Um, and, of course, that doesn't make sense, right, because people get hurt both ways. So it's not a culture of fear necessarily, but it's a system that rewards action. You know, the, the current tort system doesn't help, um, but it's not, it's not um, helpful, I think, or accurate to say that 
um, this is the whole ball game when it comes to explaining why we do more than we need to. You know, it's tricky. I, I remember being taught um, this adage, kind of, you know, the things that you're taught tacitly. And, and, and uh, one of them, one of the sort of subtle things, though, was um, this uh, adage that the only C-section you get sued for is the one you didn't do. And it sort of speaks to that, that overuse rather than underuse being valued. Where does that, where does that adage come from? Yeah, I mean, you could substitute C-section for lots of things in healthcare. This is something that educators call a hidden curriculum, right? It's not necessarily just what you're taught. It's the way that you're taught. Exactly. And so everything around you reinforces this idea of um, doing more. So there was a period where the hospital I worked at, the motto of the hospital was everything possible, period. Right? <laughs> and there's, there, there's an ethos behind that that's probably worth preserving. It's very well-intentioned, but it seems to fly in the face of being judicious and thoughtful. Um, the motto of the hospital across the street was until every child is well, period, right? Um, so you've got that on one hand. You've got those conferences I mentioned on the other. You've got the fact that every case report in the New England Journal, every conference in the hospital is about um, reviewing things that happen that are exceedingly rare and celebrating people who identify things that are very, very rare and instead of rewarding people for finding the things that are common. And so uh, people are always, therefore, thinking about worst-case scenarios and risks. And I think that, um, again, like this gets back to this complexity idea. I mean, when, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago when somebody presented with a complaint like pain, there are only three or four things that could cause that. And now we have 50. And there's a question of how much you test for and how much you look for and how much you intervene to, to prevent the 50th thing. Yeah, and we all know the incidentalomas that happen where we look for something, keep looking, keep looking, and we eventually do find something and may treat it when it doesn't even need to be treated. So well, common. Right. Ultrasound in pregnancy is a great example of that where uh, it's really only helpful when you're intentionally looking for something. Um, but if you just do it, you're basically looking at shadows. And so you see things that you don't know how to interpret, you don't know what to do about. And uh, uh, yeah, the incidentaloma is the thing that you poke with a sharp object because you don't know what it is. Maybe that could be the title of your next book, Looking at Shadows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I started my midwifery studies in 1981, believe it or not. And back in 1984, there was a book that came out. It was a yellow book, and it was all about the C-section escalation problem. And that rate at that time was somewhere between 21 and 24%. So actually, 21% brings us more within reason of what you have and other researchers have found is, is sort of that sweet spot of safety contrary to old WHO recommendations that it would more around 14 or 15 percent. So, you know, even then it was pretty reasonable. We've, we've had a dramatic rise that we've talked about, and it's actually led to something like $5 billion in excess spending, about 20,000 avoidable surgical complications for women and babies. So, you know, I kind of want to ask the question to the system, you know, how's that working out for you? And you mentioned in one uh, quote that we believe the pressure to perform C-sections may sometimes be driven by factors that have little to do with a patient's health or preferences. And you're looking at a study, uh, you've been working on a number of studies, including a really innovative study looking at the architecture of L&D units, which is fascinating. But you found that um, there are decisions that are driven by upstream and institutional specific structures, but also processes. What are some of the institutional pressures like 
financial pressures or bed turnover pressures that may be contributing to a cesarean section rates? And if those are a factor, what can be done about some of those? Here's the root cause of the problem, Aviva. We basically, as a nation, we underinvest in moms. Mm. And there are many, many examples of this, but one is like one of the most stark is right at the hospital level, where it turns out that even though childbirth ought to be one of the highest value returns on investment for society, it is has the lowest margin, financial margin, um, in healthcare delivery, usually within the hospital. So if you are part of the C-suite, if you are the chief financial officer of a hospital, uh, it's not atypical for you to look at how all of your service lines at the hospital are doing um, financially and then take OB and psychiatry out, right? Because they are always the things that drag everything down. So you show people the fully baked numbers and you show them, oh, but if you take OB and psychiatry out, here's how we're doing. OB, you know, it's, it's a high cost service that doesn't get reimbursed like the cardiac ICU, even though it resembles it. So what that means is there's no labor and delivery unit in the country that's flush with resources, these units almost always have less than they ideally need in terms of staff, in terms of beds, in terms of other critical resources. Then on top of it, you layer on the complexity of the fact that the people working on these units have no way of predicting when their customers are going to show up, right? Like if there's a full moon, like you're going to be busy. That's all you know. You don't know how <laughs> long women are going to be in labor. You don't know which one of them is going to get sick enough for you to need the blood bank or the operating room. And so when you put all that together, these environments are really hard to manage. They're really hard to design for. And um, we don't have ways of sharing best practices and how to deal with all of this. In fact, every single person responsible for running a labor and delivery unit or a birth center in this country, for the most part, figures it out on the fly and on their own. Uh, and so when you look across the country, which is what my team has done for the last couple of years, you see people that do this extraordinarily well and people that really, really struggle. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to sort of identify these challenges. But, uh, for example, a really, really big one is how you figure out how many nurses you need. If you have too few, you're dangerous. If you have too many, you're hemorrhaging money. Um, and so it can be challenging. Now, I will say that restaurants and hotels and airports, like, they have very similar problems, right? They don't know exactly who's going to show up that night. They don't know how long people are going to take to eat their meal. Um, they don't know what they're going to order out of the kitchen, but they can still predict how many waiters they need. Um, and so, you know, I think there's something that we can learn from other industries. But, yeah, this is this is essentially what I've noticed, that, the, is that these environments and the way that they're managed and structured are very different from place to place. So some of the best folks on the team for keeping labor as normal as possible, as physiologic pos as possible, are the nurses. They're doing tremendous amounts of support for moms. And that support, we do know that some amount of woman-to-woman -woman support in labor can actually mitigate the likelihood of a C-section. We've seen that with doula care. Um, if we're having hospitals that are understaffed with nurses, do we see a higher C-section rate? Or is there an increase in personnel for supporting moms one-on-one -on -one that could make a difference in this cesarean rate, and how would that affect costs? Well, um, yeah, so anything that you do that increases resources increases costs. And so I think what we need to be able to do is not solely cut costs for the sake of cutting costs, but just make better arguments for the value of investing in our moms. 
Um, and this is on the labor and delivery unit, and it's well afterwards in terms of family leave and other issues where we ought to be investing in moms. But um, yes, it, it is true that places that are able to, that are better at managing their staff have better outcomes for their patients. There's really, really good evidence that that's uh, true. Um, it's also true, though, that you know part of the complexity is that you can be really good at managing one thing and be so bad at managing something else that it cancels it out. Yeah, <laughs> um, and true. so you kind of have to be able to look at the entire picture and all of the different ways that this interacts. Uh, part of what I'm trying to do, though, is that given the complexity and how much stuff there is to keep track of, uh, now my team is focused on what is the solution that um, could work in uh, Boston and in Nebraska and in Miami. What are the what is the simplest set of highest yield things that any labor and delivery unit can do? Um, and, and what are the things that are not only high yield and impactful, but also feasible that uh, are impalatable? And, you know, what are, what are the ideas that I can sell to any hospital in the country uh, in terms of a solution that can decrease C-section rates? Are these yeah. some of the five interventions that you looked at, like teaching better management of shoulder dystocia, for example? It's not even that. No, I mean, I actually think, um, you know, it, this might be a little bit too in the weeds, so you can just let me know. But and we're still very much in the process of developing these. But, uh, you know, I use every talk that I give, every Grand Rounds around the country as like a focus group, you know. Um, and uh, they don't necessarily know that they're being used as a focus group, but both to test messages and to test ideas. But I always ask them, you know, if you could pick only three things you know, that we ought to be doing differently on labor and delivery units to decrease C-section rates, most people can come up with pretty good lists and they converge um, around a couple of things. Like the, the b biggest reason why healthy women get C-sections they don't need is because we call um, the diagnosis of labor dystocia prematurely. Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, we don't know how long people should take in labor and we don't have very well-defined evidence-based maximums of how long labor sh should take before it's dangerous and you worry about obstruction. But we have extremely well-established minimums that, you know, women should get to push for at least this amount of time or whatever. And if we only enforced those, it'd be worth tens of thousands of C-sections per year. So, you know, these are solvable problems. And rather than try and boil the ocean, what we ought to be doing is picking these really, really high-yield actions and pushing on them. Yeah, there was a brilliant article that came out probably about maybe seven years ago now, maybe not quite that much, on... Um the Friedman curve, for those of you who are not listening, it's a standard labor curve that's been used since, what, the 1950s at least? Um, it was based on actually a limited, fairly limited number of uh, laboring women, but it's been sort of the standard of defining when a woman is considered dilated enough to be called inactive labor, how long each phase of labor should last. And it's, you know, midwives have known for, I mean, I've been a midwife for over 30 years or involved in the midwifery community for longer. And we've long kind of looked at the Friedman curve askance or just sort of stopped looking at it at some point, knowing that there's a lot of variation in how women labor. And agreed, I think for home birth midwives, sometimes that maximum end maybe needs to be a little bit better defined. And clearly it's been the other end that's been underdefined in the hospital, but that's just one of sort of these amazing evidence-based areas of knowledge that we have that just haven't fully trickled down into labor and delivery. Can, can you talk about that? Why we have evidence, but the evidence isn't always being applied? Yes. Um, my colleague Atul Gawande says that there are two sources of human fallibility. 
And this comes across as harsh when you talk to clinicians, but he says there's basically ignorance and ineptitude. <laughs> ignorance is not knowing the answer. Ineptitude is knowing the answer, but failing to execute on the knowledge that you have. Um, and the dominant problem in 2017 in much of healthcare is ineptitude, not ignorance. We know a lot of things, but we struggle to execute on it. You know, we've known we're supposed to wash our hands for 150 years, but the Ebola outbreak in Texas two years ago proved that we're still working on it. You know, and the way that you get better isn't by holding up the evidence. It's about thinking about um, why the evidence might be hard to follow. What are the what are the barriers? Um, simply telling obstetricians to be more patient is not helpful. But figuring out how to better deploy the resources around them, from the nurses to the beds to the other resources, might make it easier to be more patient. I also think that when you look at our recommendations, every clinical guideline tries to boil the ocean a little bit. Like, you know, when they tell us to do things, they come across as laundry lists and they seem to make our lives more complicated, not better. You know, like nobody who's developing a product for any customer would do this, where you're like, here's a bunch more stuff to do. Um, and what you, what you get is basically there's always a table in every guideline uh, that has one column for the evidence you should be following and another column for the strength of the evidence, which tells you how much you should believe it. Um, but what's missing is a third column that gives you the impact of any one of those things and a fourth column that assesses the feasibility of doing any one of those things. And if you did that, you'd come up with the three things that everyone should be doing. You'd see the needle start to move. What were the other two things that are the most common that you're finding in the focus groups to reduce C-section rate? Well, I'll tell you the big idea, I think. And it, it may seem really duh obvious to you, Viva, given your background, but what I've noticed, it, it's, this, this is an idea that bundles together a bunch of different things, but I've noticed that the places that are best at using interventions appropriately are the best at identifying normality and intentionally preserving it. And this is the literal opposite of what most clinicians, nurses in particular, and obstetricians in particular are trained to do where when I'm on my labor floor, I spend most of my time thinking about the patients who are the sickest uh, and the most acute. They get most of my cognitive power. And um, they're actually in some, time, some ways the most straightforward because the guidelines are very clear what you do with somebody with preeclampsia or somebody you know who has a category three fetal heart tracing. And the action is also very clear um, when you definitely need to do a C-section. But it turns out that normal women need a lot. They need a lot of support to get um, optimal outcomes. And um, it turns out supporting women in labor takes attention and resources as well. And, um, you know, like if you think about it, like the fetal heart tracings, it's much easier to leave somebody on a continuous fetal heart monitor than it is to use intermittent auscultation, right? It's much easier for the nurse. Um, there, there's so many things like that. Um, I actually think that if we were to, uh, it, sound, it might sound crazy, but if you take a bunch of low-risk people and put them in a high-risk environment, you almost have to put a label on them that reminds people that they're low-risk. Yeah. And so that's actually the big idea, is that when people come in and they're low-risk, and we have a really, really clear way of, of defining that, that everybody agrees to, and then we have a, a bunch of things that we ought to be doing for all of these people that everybody agrees to, but we don't do, like making sure that we don't admit them too early or making sure that the right people are not getting continuous fetal heart monitoring. Um, so that's what I think that we ought to be doing is labeling normality 
when I people love that. Acu- acuity environments. So midwives, for the most part, well-trained midwives, we can look at Canadian midwives, UK midwives, or even a really you know, top tier of home birth midwives in the U.S., recognize birth as fundamentally a normal human physiologic process, which seems to be a different, there seems to be a different worldview operating in the obstetrics model, which is really that, um, as one OB said to me, birth is a disaster waiting to happen. And so we're, we're actually looking at a completely different lens. And when you're, when you're on the lookout for danger, you tend to see it. And of course, we want all of our providers, midwives, OBs, everyone to be cognizant that things can go very wrong and quickly. But it seems to me that there's a whole human body of of knowledge in the United States and worldwide amongst midwives who do actually know what normal is. And, you know, for me as a home birth midwife, before I was a medical doctor, there were a number of cases where I picked up something because most of the women who came to me were low risk. So I saw normal. So when I saw abnormal, I picked it up pretty quickly, actually. So, you know, I was doing palpation and finding a breach that was missed in the doctor's office, for example. And I guess my, you know, my big question is here is, I feel like there's so much that can improve the medical model of birth if the obstetrics model and, and those in, in that position would actually collaborate more to try to understand what midwives see and know and do. What, what is going wrong here that that is just not happening? I remember being at Yale and even the medical residents, the OB residents would sometimes like roll their eyes and say, oh, that's a midwife birth. Oh, that's a midwife client. There's still some culture of um, hierarchy happening there. And it's, it's disturbing to me, but I also think that some of the answers are right in front of us. You're probably right about that, Aviva. I mean, I think your pathway has been, your professional pathway has been kind of revolutionary, you know, and when you think about ways of improving, if you want to be really reductive about the models, there's basically evolution and revolution, you know, and there's there's a pipe dream in my mind if you could disrupt everything and start over again. Mm. Um, and then there's an incremental approach that um, sort of is steeped in, uh, the fact that, you know, 90% of births are obstetricians and 99% are in hospitals and you sort of try and nudge things back to where you think they ought to be from there. Um, but, you know, in that pipe dream, midwives are at the center, not the periphery. And you assume that most people are normal, not, you know, a third of people are normal, as some of the definitions of normality would currently have you have. And the whole thing about normality is it's about norms and then you have to ask whose norms Right. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's it's hard to think about normality as being a minority of women, which means we probably have to change our definition of normality. And that is that is a feature of the current model that makes me want to scratch my head and a lot of other people. And um, part of the reason why I know I'm at least directionally correct in thinking about this is the wisdom of a lot of the midwives that I've met um, and the birth advocacy community and the doulas and the people who've uh, long known the things that I'm saying and have long said the things that I'm saying, you know, and, uh, um, you know, everything that you're saying is right. I, I also think that the way that a lot of the obstetrics, obstetrical practice is designed right now, uh, the maternal fetal medicine doctors 
are the ones who end up developing a lot of our guidelines and setting a lot of our policies. And they are the opposite of what you were when you diagnosed that breach, right? They spend all of their time on the upper end of the risk spectrum. Um, yeah. And so uh, for them, that, that's, those are their optics. That's their vantage point. And it's interesting to me that we think of you know, maternal fetal medicine as being a super specialized area, but we don't think of midwifery as being super specialized, even though there's definitely a set of skills and wisdom and experience that comes with optimizing normal care. Or, or normal outcomes for normal normal patients. So, um, and I guess as a general OB, I'm kind of caught in between. But, um, you know, I feel that way sometimes too. As a midwife slash MD slash family doc trained in OB, sometimes there's sort of a no man's land in that. Um, when I have tried to post articles, for example, on my Facebook page, even some of your articles about cesarean prevention or overuse and unnecessary treatment, you know, they're so common now that, in fact, I was talking with someone recently, uh, she's a, a woman in her late 30s, really successful, just had her first baby. And when I asked her how things went, she said, well, I managed to avoid a C-section. I mean, it wasn't even I had a great birth. I, you know, I mm -hmm. had this beautiful baby. It's just I managed to avoid a C-section. She's an educated woman who's also tr working in areas of, of um, primary care risk reduction. So they're so common. But it's, it's easy to forget that they're major abdominal surgery. You have, you have shared numerous kind of shocking statistics that as midwives we are aware of, but I think the general public might not realize that there's a threefold higher rate of serious complications for moms compared to vaginal delivery, including risk of hemorrhage, severe infection, organ injury, deep vein thrombosis or you know, severe clotting, um, infections, complications from anesthesia, complications for future pregnancies, uh, especially if there's been um, a, a placenta accreta from repeat C-sections and repeat, repeat access to the uterus through abdominal surgery, neonatal respiratory complications. It, the list goes on. But when I have posted some of your articles or other articles on my Facebook page, I've gotten pushback. There's almost like a Stockholm syndrome kind of situation going on. And I've had women write, well, my baby had her umbilical cord around her neck and would have died otherwise, or I had to because of a bad fetal heart tracing. But you and I know trained in obstetrics. And of course, we would never second guess or judge anyone for a decision they made or any practitioner made. But 30% of babies have a cord around the neck. And most of the time, that's not going to cause a complication. We know that unnecessary C-sections are partly happening because of overly zealous interpretation or inaccurate interpretation of, say, category two fetal heart tracing. So how do we kind of get past this pushback in having conversations with women so they can be educated about the problem of overuse without feeling blamed or guilty? Clearly, it's not their fault, but we also know that there's tremendous influence of customers in what happens in healthcare trends. So what, what do you think about all this? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting to me is um, in making the case for why we need less C-sections to various stakeholders, I found that there are often different arguments that you use. So, you know, if I'm talking to people who... Um, control money, you talk about $5 billion and 50% margins per case. The thing is, as soon as it's somebody else's money, they don't care anymore. So I find that kind of fascinating. And then you talk about patient harm, you know, as a thing. 
And that's not really compelling either because it's only a credible thing when you zoom out on the entire country and the entire country is an abstraction, right? But when you're at the individual patient level, um, people always are willing to justify what happened if their baby is okay. Um, and you'll hear that all the time. Well, you know, at least I have a healthy baby and, and moms stop there thinking that that's what they deserve. Uh, and they think they, they're presented with this false choice that it's either them or, or their baby. Um, and interestingly, like even when you, so, so when you move that away, th there's still something fundamental that people, I think, particularly in the birth advocacy community feel like is missing. Um, which is that I think when you have a baby, it's this moment of, uh, identity formation as a mom. And it's a moment of either, uh, incredible self agency or lack thereof, um, that really, really matters to people. Um, but they don't have something to compare it again to, and they, and therefore don't always know what they deserve. And, and then moms are just fundamentally resilient. So whatever happened to them, they tend to just suck it up and then take care of their baby and move on. It's part of the reason why it's hard to organize the voices in maternal health to, to improve things. It's, it's because, um, I think partially because moms are used to putting their families first, putting themselves last in order to put their families first. So it's hard. I will say that in the information economy, which I think is the single most disruptive thing, not only in healthcare, but in our politics and everything in the world right now. Uh, there is a newfound opportunity to um, engage moms and women and patients and families in the conversation about how we improve maternal health. I mean, fundamentally, uh, how we treat our moms, how babies are born is incredibly important to humanity. It's as important as... Um, climate change or any of these other, you know, big things that we're confronting as a species is we've really changed the way we're born. We've gone from uh, it being relatively uncommon to deliver babies through large surgical wounds to it being extremely common. So common, in fact, that everybody knows somebody who's had a C-section. Not only that, any room that you're in of people, even a room that has a lot of men in it, it's still the most common surgery that's been performed in that room. But I, I think that, you know, what the information economy has done is it's put a primacy on transparency that wasn't possible in the 80s when you were first starting as a midwife. Uh, you know, Yelp didn't exist. Amazon didn't exist. Um, I think... I think the internet didn't exist, actually. The internet didn't exist. <laughs> it did no. not exist. But, but that's, that's the thing. I think there's an expectation among young reproductive age women uh, to know uh, what the quality of the services they're going to receive are for every other commodity that they purchase. And I also think that reproductive age women are the demographic that anybody who's trying to sell anything is trying to target, um, particularly if they're pregnant because they're so discerning. I mean, pregnant women give up sushi and alcohol, for God's sake. They're very committed, you know? Even, even New Yorkers. It's even, amazing. Even New Yorkers. So this brings um, me to two questions. One is, so you're a mom in labor and your OB resident comes in and says, I think there's a problem in this fetal heart tracing. You know, as you say, I mean, women are just mother bears. We will do anything, even at our own. And we'll chew off our arm and feed it to our kid if we had to, right, for survival. I mean, this is just what we do. And so the OB comes in and says, look, you know, we're seeing some dips, da 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 You have to have a C-section. You've got a woman who isn't necessarily an OB, who isn't trained in un interpreting medical speak or a category, anything, fetal heart tracing, let alone what that means. 
and she's presented with a C-section. And let's say she's a woman who actually really did want to avoid an unnecessary C-section. So somebody who's even educated about this issue. But now she's faced with having contractions, being stressed out because of that demand on her. Maybe she hasn't eaten in X, Y, Z number of hours. And she's being made to, she's being forced to make a decision for her baby's life. What can a woman do? And we're not talking about an, an imminent emergency. We're not talking about a, a, a prolapse cord that's hanging out. Not something obvious. We're talking about that gray zone that you mentioned. What can a woman or a woman and her partner do in that moment to sort through this overwhelming recommendation and and make meaning of it and, and come to some relationship with their provider for time or anything that can make that outcome different? That's a hard one, Aviva. But I mean, I would say that um, one of the challenges is that there are big agency problems in healthcare. I mean, there's an information asymmetry between the provider and the woman that's on both sides. So the woman knows herself better. She knows how much energy she has. She knows what her values are. She knows what her goals are. The doctor may very well have information she doesn't about the risk and what's going on. And so um, the communication there is really essential. And I think, um, you know, the, the challenge is, as a obstetrician myself who's trying to act as an agent on behalf of the patient, I often have to project my own feelings onto them. You know, I make assumptions about um, risk tolerance and many things, values. And so I, I think for the person who's in that situation, it's very difficult. But I think the most important thing is to ask questions, um, not necessarily in a combative way or to even push back, but just to say, you know, um, I hear what you're saying. And of course, I want what's best for my baby. And I trust you. Actually, the, the most important thing you can do is say, I trust you, because I think that really opens up a channel. I agree with you. I, I think that that combative does not help anyone at all. And getting on that same page that we all want what's best for baby. I mean, there's something very disarming about telling a clinician who's worried for you that, that you trust them, but you just want to make sure that this is the only way. What they're recommending is the only way because it's important to you that, you, you know, if it's safe, you give it every chance. And often uh, the way it works in childbirth is that it, it's very often the case that they don't have to act right away and that a little bit more time is reasonable. And it's very often the case that if you do that, that whatever was concerning the clinician might resolve. It would be really powerful to come up with a set of questions that moms can have in labor or that even OBs can have, or any OBs, family, docs, midwives can have to help kind of sort out some of those questions that the mom might have or to really kind of do that double check or some kind of conversation icebreaker that would address what to do in that moment. It's something that's quite absent. I don't know that it's really been done, but I'd I've love to see that. that. I mean, I think that the, the difficult conversation between a patient and a clinician, for the clinician, it's the ultimate artisanal craft, right? Because like it usually happens in private behind a closed door where the clinician is telling the patient something challenging about how they're either worried about them or whatever it is. And some people are awesome at having those conversations and some people are terrible. And uh, there's very little off the shelf guidance about how to do it best. And I totally agree with you that it would be great to have some kind of shared decision-making guidance. And in theory, this is what a birth plan is supposed to be. 
I find it totally fascinating that there's so many similarities between end of life and beginning of life. And oh, one I of, so agree. Right, like a living will and a birth plan are theoretically supposed to be very similar kinds of documents. They're designed to get us to dial it down and understand your values. And on one hand, living wills are very well accepted now, and birth plans are still kind of controversial. Well, I mean, you can just be at a nurse's station, and the mom comes in with her birth plan. What is it that the nurses say? The mom's length of labor is directly proportional to her birth plan. And I think so many birth plans are looked at with a little bit of derision, or you know, the staff will say, well, let's see how that goes for her. And the birth plans are essentially written because women are coming in with a list of things they don't want that are typically on the menu. So to some extent, a birth plan to me represents sort of the fundamental schism between what that mom really wants and what tends to happen in a hospital. And I think if we get... No, but living well is the same thing because people are saying they don't want a ventilator, they don't want to be intubated, they don't want, um, you know, they don't want paddles on them, they don't want, you know, living wills can be extremely specific. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's something about the dynamic in childbirth that makes birth plans very difficult. And I, I think it's actually a problem on both sides. I think that birth plans are misunderstood by both parties because they, they can't be, you know, a fixed set of assertions. They have to be able to be dynamically updated. But on the other hand, there's no framework for doing that and for establishing that important communication that you mentioned. And the outcome is very different. If somebody's at end of life, we expect them to die. If somebody's in labor, that's the last outcome we want for mom or baby. So the stakes are very different in um, in interpreting what would be an appropriate intervention. I think that's true to a degree. But I will say that, of course, nobody wants somebody in childbirth to die. But um, nobody wants people to suffer when they die either way. True. Um, and I, I think that there's a good death and a, a bad death and there's a good birth and a bad birth. And ultimately it comes down to valuing people's experience, um, which matters to people so much that when they find out what I do for a living, like if I'm wearing an OBGYN fleece in the dog park, complete strangers will come up to me, uh, really consistently and tell me what their birth experience was like. It's an amazing thing people really want to share about. It's so powerful. Yeah. So yeah. one more question for you. So, Neil, you mentioned the new guidelines from Britain, the NICE study that showed that low-risk pregnant women may be better off staying out of the hospital. And this is fascinating to me because what came out in this study is there's actually a 1% risk of the baby dying that's greater at home than in the hospital. But both the NICE study and your uh, review of it say that the risks of over-intervention in hospitals may be so much more dangerous that that risk is sort of outweighed by the under-intervention at home in birthing centers. But this is all in the context of women having their babies at home in Britain with consistently trained midwives, but also what I think is so important, a seamless integration of home and hospital settings. And, you know, it's been a bit troubling what I've seen here in the U.S. with midwifery in that part of what's happened is a lot of women choosing home birth as a backlash to this escalated rate of intervention in the hospital and wanting something more natural. But because of midwifery laws around the U.S. being fairly limited, midwifery training being inconsistent, and also transport from home birth to the hospital not always being met with open arms, we've seen kind of a wild west in 
in who is a midwife. We've seen a wild west in how standards and protocols are being observed at home. We've seen probably a lower transport rate from home to hospital than would be ideal. As you mentioned, sometimes over-intervention and under-intervention are at spectrums of problems in obstetrics. It can also be a, a spectrum of problem in midwifery. And we've seen midwives stay at home too long. I mean, I've had to decline to testify on behalf of home birth midwives in some cases where the birth has gone really badly because, in fact, in my opinion, it was sort of really poor care on the part of the midwife. So, you know, I think for me, one of the biggest things I see that can improve home birth in the United States, aside from standardization of midwifery education, is creating a more seamless network between hospital and home birth, much more like what we see in Britain. And it can even be challenging for nurse midwives because they're not always trained in home birth in the U.S. They're trained in supporting hospital and birthing centers. So what do you think are the obstacles and how can we overcome them to create a safer home birth environment overall in the, in the U.S. so that it is something we can recommend as an option for low-risk moms? Well, I think the most important thing is to ask exactly that question, which is, believe it or not, an innovation on top of the existing conversation, which is the existing conversation is very much about our homes inherently safe or our hospitals inherently safe. And that seems silly to me. I mean, there, there's, I'm not a fan of blanket statements in general. I think the question that we should be asking is your question, which is how do we make homes safe? Because I think women assume that uh, hospitals are safer, that they're willing to tolerate, you know, the fluorescent lighting and being tethered to these hospital beds. But if they thought or they were, uh, if, if there was reason to believe that homes could be safer um, or, uh, you know, such an intimate experience, I think most people would prefer to be in the comfort of, of their home with um, good and trusted care. It, it, it suddenly makes sense um, as long, you know, as soon as you can sort of present it in a way that is credibly safe. Uh, and so I think that uh, that's something that we ought to think about and work towards. I would, I would love to continue to have this conversation with you and ask some of these questions together and, and um, really create an environment in the U.S. where women have the option that they feel most comfortable with. You know, my experience has been that women will birth the best where they actually do feel safest. And for some women, that is at home. For some women, that is in the hospital. So I so appreciate your efforts to make hospitals a better place for moms and make it a place where moms can come in and get the interventions that they need without unnecessary and, unnecessary and potentially harmful and dangerous interventions. And I, I also really want to say I so deeply appreciate your respect for not just the health and safety of the baby as the outcome. Look, we know that that's the goal for mom, dad, partner, obstetrician, everybody on the team, but the experience of the mom has been grossly neglected. And I, I just want to honor you for bringing that back to the conversation. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. I look forward to talking with you more and hey, knock it out of the park at ACOG, 11,000 OBs. That's a lot to reach. That is a lot. Thank you so much, Aviva. It's, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Neil. Talk to you again soon. Okay, sounds good. 
you for joining me for another episode of Natural MD Radio. If you're interested in spending some more time with Dr. Shaw, he has arranged a March for Moms. It's going to be happening on May 14th, Sunday at 1 to 4 p.m. at the Jefferson Memorial. So if you're in the Washington, D.C. area and can make it, head on over there. And if you want to learn more, head over to marchformoms.org. I'll see you next week on Natural MD Radio. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time. <laughs>